Good morning. It's, I don't know, at 11, is it still morning? I guess so, right? Good yeah. morning, good late morning, almost afternoon. Well, this is, <laughs> this is Jack Kelly. Let's go live with Jack Kelly. And today I want to talk about something where I guarantee you anybody who's watching this now or is going to watch it on the replay has gone through this. Uh, if you've lost a job or maybe you're thinking of moving jobs, you might, and you didn't want to do it, but you kind of spoke with maybe your parents or your friends or your neighbors or your coworkers and, and let them know, wait, I was thinking of maybe switching jobs or let's say you lost your job. Say, hey, I lost my job. Do you have any advice? Now, once that happens and the cat is out of the bag and you're asking for advice, either, you know, how to find a job or should I switch my job? You're going to get, and people love this. People love giving advice and telling others what to do when they have no knowledge of the industry whatsoever, no knowledge of what you do for a living. But yet they're going to weigh in and say, I have the answer. This is what you have to do. And, and I imagine this resonates with everybody. It's, a, it's the weirdest thing. We're like What I'll do sometimes when people ask me, hey, can you help me with X or Y, whatever? And I'm like, I don't have an ego. So I'm like, uh, I would like to help you, but I have no idea about <laughs> what you do for a living. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I really can't be of help. I'm not being rude. I just can't help. But other people, they don't care. They're like, I have the answer. I'll let you know. Uh, a lot of parents do that. This is the crazy thing too, is let's say you're, you don't even have to be a young person, like a Gen Z or, or you know, a younger millennial. Goes even to if you're Gen Xers and well, both my parents are gone. So like, they don't you know bother me. They don't nudge me with this stuff, uh, but they used to. And they can't wait to say, wow, I'm going to give this advice. And let's take you have like boomer parents. No, nothing wrong with boomer parents. Boomers are fine. They'll probably say, oh, you're looking for a job. Hey, why don't you go into this building, go into every building in Manhattan and knock on every door and ask to see for, for the boss to get your, to give him your resume or her resume. And, and then you know, sit and wait for them to answer and tell you whether you could get an offer or not. Like, it's so it's so old school that they wait. No, no, mom, no, dad. That's not how it works. You know, there's emails now, texts, there's Zoom calls. You don't I need you don't go to someone's office and just knock on the door and ask for the boss. And the boss goes, oh, yeah, of course, I'm not busy. Come right in and I'll interview you right now. And some of the, so like the advice sometimes is like so cringe, so bad. And, it, and a lot of times it's just dangerous. Now, when people provide the, this career advice, they're not doing it purposely to hurt you. They're not trying to, you know, trip you up or make you look bad. It's, it's well-intentioned. See, this is the whole thing. It's well-intentioned. They want to help. They, they want you to do well. They want you to succeed, but they don't really know what to do. And they think for whatever reason, they have all the answers. So what I want to do today is talk about how well-intentioned people try to give career advice, but it's super bad. It's really bad and it doesn't help and it can make things worse. And maybe you, you just have to politely say, hey, thank you. I really appreciate the offer but I think I'm going to be okay. Thanks very much. <laughs> so, so, Hey, Chris, let's start this off. I, I figure we'll do it this way. Christine could kind of run through some of the, some of the basic stuff that I've seen all the time. And she's seen all the time and all the recruiters with us see all the time, all these issues that pop up. And uh, do, do you want to take a stab at it? Should I give you a title or you want to kind of run through and I'll debunk I'll, 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 I'll dish them out and then you can define them. <laughs> All right. So you want to start dishing? Yes. All right. So, let's dish it. In addition to parents, we also have like those 20 year olds on TikTok <laughs> who, who like to give advice and impart their wisdom. And then 
in that advice, they'll tell you to act your wage or commit to bare minimum Monday or quiet quit. Is that good advice or bad advice? You know, that's the worst <laughs> advice. And I, I think I get where it comes from. I, I totally get where it comes from. It's coming from a place where uh, you have relatively young people who are having a really hard time of things. They're, they have, they're buried with college debt, high inflation, high interest rates. They can't get out of their parents' house because they don't have the money to get an apartment. In New York, I think it's like 4,000 and change the average price for, you know, to rent an apartment. It's crazy. So, so yeah, they're frustrated and they're angry and they're bitter. And I, and again, I can't really blame them because they're in a tough spot. So what ends up happening, they'll give advice like, well, you know, if I can't get anywhere, I'm not going to try hard and I'm going to act my wage. So meaning I'm not going to go above and beyond what I should do. I'm just going to coast. I'm going to do the bare minimum because why should I even try hard? It doesn't help. Just because the market may suck, just because you're in a bad spot, if you do these things, if, if, you, if you don't try to exceed expectations, if you just try to coast, if you don't, if you don't work hard and put in the time and put in the effort, nothing is going to happen. And then it's going to be this downward spiral because managers and coworkers and colleagues aren't dumb. You think they're dumb, but they're not. They know that you're just, just slacking. They know that you're just unhappy. You're disconnected, you're disengaged. And the longer it goes on, the more these people to be like, you know what, F you. You know, stop with your attitude, stop with your complaining, stop with like just screwing up assignments because you ever notice this? People screw up assignments purposely so then you don't ask them to do anything anymore. So they do a really bad job and they do it purposely so they realize Jack is not going to go back and ask them to do any more because they're like, uh, you know, you can't do it. Just, just leave me alone. And that's not going to help your career. It's going to label you as somebody who's just a malcontent, someone who's disgruntled, someone who is unhappy, someone who's not motivated. And in the business world, that's the last thing you want in a worker and employee. And then if you're going to go and maybe quiet quit or actually quit, and the person who's looking to hire at the other place asks for a recommendation, what kind of recommendation do you get? That the person sucked. They were terrible. They were horrible. They didn't, really, they didn't do their assignments on time. They were always, you know, bitching and moaning. So, yeah, so... I would say, I would say for the first topic, when do not, do not listen to these TikTok memers who are spouting, just, just do your least, don't work hard. That's not going to get you anywhere. Not going to get you anywhere. And it's, and it's going to really be detrimental to your career. Plus those trends are like revenge ploys. And I always feel like the best revenge is to do well for yourself and show them like, hey, this is what happens when you don't treat us well. You got a better job. You got paid more. Mm -hmm. You're at a company that respects you. So I ultimately, I think that that's the best revenge just to do well for yourself and get out of there. You're so right. You're so right, right? As opposed to just, you know, doing what we talked about uh, to say, hey, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever it takes to succeed and do well, get a better job offer. And then I'm going to go to another company and super succeed. And I could look back and say, meh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you see, it wasn't me. It was you, you, you guys suck, not me. Look at where I am now. I'm in a, I'm a winner. I'm doing really well. I got a good corporate title. I'm making more money. So you're right, Christine. I agree with you. Great point. Yeah. It's like revenge bot, except your career. <laughs> your revenge career yes <laughs> okay the second one what how do you feel about when people say pursue your passion you know every it's almost like it's it's such a cliche right it's such a trope where every college graduation high school graduation they're always like so young people fellow young people pursue your passion follow what you believe do what you love 
If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. All those platitudes, right? They have all those platitudes. And I don't know if they even think like what they're saying. I get that they're trying to appease and say the right things to their audience to make them feel good. But if you, if you follow your passion, what are the odds that your passion could turn into making a living? Usually a passion, let's be frank, usually a, 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 a passion is like a hobby. It could be, hey, you know, I like collecting stamps. That's my passion. I like basket weaving. That's my passion. My passion is pickleball. My passion is, you know, watching watching Netflix. My passion is arts and crafts. My, you know, you get where I'm going. So a lot of times the passions are just like dopey. And of course, I'm overgeneralizing because I know I'm getting eye rolls and like, yo, I have passions that are really good. I get, of course, I'm, you know, I'm doing the, come on, I'm doing this for effect. You know, it's got to make this fun, right? Got to make it interesting. So I'm, I'm overdramatizing it. But, but I think what happens, most of the passions are, are, are just like, hey, I like doing this. Great. But then you have to say, can I make a living? Can I earn a nice salary from this? Is this a long-term sustainable career or not? So you have to put some rationale and some reasoning behind it. Because if you're just thinking, hey, I'm passionate, if I'm passionate about you know, playing guitar. All right, great. But do you have what it takes to get a band together, to get an agent, to get a manager, to get gigs, do really well? And what are the odds of that happening? Could it? Yeah. You know, clearly there are people who do that and, and succeed. But what are the odds? Maybe you do a passion project. So perhaps you focus on being the best accountant you could be, but you could have a sideline of being a musician after hours and weekends, nights. And then perhaps that could turn into something. But usually when it's your passion, it's you're, you're, you're just like it. You like it. But I'll tell you where it's backwards with the whole follow your passion thing. I think it's backwards. The real thing is this you find something where you have the skills to do. You know, that you're really good at data analytics. You're really good at coding. You're really good at selling. And you want to double down on what you're really good at. Because if you're really good at it, you're going to enjoy doing it. And if you enjoy doing it, you're going to get success. And then once you see su success, then you're like, wow, I like this. And then you work even harder. And then you get more success and you work even harder. So now all of a sudden you're passionate about selling insurance or you're passionate about being a mortgage broker, something that you wouldn't ordinarily think you would be passionate about, but you are. And the reason you are not necessarily because you love insurance, not because you love writing mortgages for homeowners, but it's because you realize I could do this and I could do this well and I could succeed. And I get that great feeling of, uh, you know, I'm good at what I do and I'm making money at what I do and I could build a future. That's where the passion comes in. It's the opposite of the way people look at it. The passion really comes in once you find, it's almost like one of those Venn diagrams where they look, you know, what are your skills? What are your abilities? What do you enjoy doing? How can you make money? And then you want to have that intersection of the Venn diagram. And then like, that's my sweet spot. And then if you really just hone in, hyper-focus on the sweet spot, that's how you succeed. And that's how you become passionate about what you do. And that's how you're going to do really well in your career. Plus, do you feel like instead they should say, do something that fulfills you where you find meaning in your work? Because I feel like that could bring about passion. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a really interesting take because one, if you find meaning. Meaning sometimes is kind of like that passion. Like, hey, I'm doing something meaningful. But if you're doing something meaningful that doesn't 
relate that doesn't create a future for yourself, that it doesn't create a way to make a living so that, and I don't mean to be crass, but in today's day and age, it's not like in the 1940s or fifties where, you know, you could buy a home with a bucket of blueberries and, and, a, and a cow and some, you know, I don't know, some beans and you get home that's, you know, for nothing. And then now all of a sudden your home, you know, 50 years later is worth a million dollars. Now it's, you need that something. Yeah, it could be meaningful, but if it doesn't, it doesn't kind of get you where you want to go, where you can't rent an apartment, you can't buy a home, you can't send your kids to college, you can't do all that, you can't travel. So you'd also have to find a way that the job you have that offers meaning and fulfillment needs to come into that Venn diagram again, where you're, you, you're good at what you're doing, you enjoy what you're doing, and you can make money doing it, and you can have fulfillment and pur purpose. So if you could find that overlap, then that's perfect. Otherwise, you might feel very dejected. And the odds are, if you had meaning and you know maybe working for some nonprofit, and then after a while, you're not getting paid and well, and you don't have a future, you're going to lose that meaning really fast. And all of a sudden, that fulfillment is gone of helping people because now you're like, wow, I'm helping people, but they're doing better than I am. And this is terrible. And I'm super unhappy. That's a good point. How about when your boss pisses you off one time and then your friend tells you, just, just rage apply? So, yeah, this is what happens a lot. Like, so, you know, you get a, you get a funny look, you get scolded, you know, you, 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 you hear some negative feedback. Maybe you're on a, a performance improvement plan and it's very easy to be like, you know, heck with this. And, and, you know, you go to your friends and others say, you shouldn't take that. You deserve better. Heck with them. You know, just find another job, get out of there. I would always, I would cancel, I would counsel in, in a hot market where everything is going up, jobs are plentiful, great, lots of opportunities. If your boss is a jerk and says something inappropriate or just, just a micromanager or toxic, or just, uh, just don't like the person in a hot market. Yeah. You know what? Might as well start looking for a job in an economy like this for white collar professionals. And the reason I'm designated white collar professionals, number one on LinkedIn, most, a lot of, you know, that's kind of really most of the people, but with blue collar and frontline, there are lots of jobs out there for them. So they're good. They're doing well. The skilled trades people, the blue, blue collar people, uh, the frontline jobs are plenty. When you look at the jobs report, pretty much that's it. The white collar jobs now are a little tiny bit. The rest are the others. So if it's not a good market, if, if, if it's a tough market, it's hard to find a job, you got to suck it up. You got to suck it. doesn't mean you can't discreetly look for another job, but you don't want to lose your temper. You don't want to get all emotional. You don't want to get all angry. You don't want to get all resentful. You got to play the game. You got to say to yourself, okay, I'm not terribly happy. My boss is a jerk but I'm going to let it roll down my back because either a I'm going to, I'm going to like Christine, you mentioned, I'm going to do so well that I'm going to blow past my boss and climb up the ladder. And I'm going to be the boss of my former boss or B you bide your time, bite your lip, play the game, find a recruiter, find a career coach, Find a resume writer, find somebody, you know, who could help you get a new job and do it stealthily, but you don't want to be the one who just loses your temper, says the wrong thing. Next thing, either you rage apply too much or you just quit. And that's just not, not, not going to go well. When I hear the term rage apply, I always imagine like someone just also shotgunning their resume mm -hmm. and that's something that you would advise against, right? Yeah, because what happens is this, when you send over a resume, 
and I'm not saying this is fair or it's right. You send over a resume and, you know, with the best intent that, hey, I, my, I'm good for the job. I have the right experience. I have the right background, the right credentials, the, the correct um, licenses for the role and so forth. And so when the HR person or hiring manager interviews to use the resume, they go, oh, yeah, hey, this is really on point and so forth. But if you just rage apply, meaning you're just so ticked off at everything and you want to get the heck out of where you are, you're just submitting your resume everywhere. And you and and let's say there's a couple of companies you like, instead of just targeting your resume for that job that you feel you're really on target for, you're just sending it to any job that's open. And then when the people look at the applicant tracking system and they look at the resumes and they say, oh, Jack applied for this job. Oh, cool. Yeah, he really fits for it. Well, wait, he also applied for this one? What? And then for this one? And this other job? And this other, what the heck? Then it kind of, it, it, it degrades you as a candidate because they're going to think the hiring manager, the HR person, the internal talent acquisition person, they're going to think, why, why did Jack just send his right for everything? Does he really even care? Or is he just so frustrated that he's just, just spraying and praying that someone will see the resume? So it doesn't come off as if I really want this particular job in this particular company. It shows if you're rage applying and they see it just shows up again and again and again, they're like, this guy is not for real. He doesn't care. He's sending his resume everywhere to everybody and he's desperate or, and, and he just, Jack just wants a job. And this is, you know, he, he doesn't really care about our company. He doesn't come care about the particular job. It's just, he wants anything. And that's not really what the hiring managers want. They want someone who wants to be invested into the company and really wants that particular job. So like, yeah, so with the raging of rage apply, it could really bounce back and hurt you, particularly when you send it in to, you know, a particular one company and you just keep sending it for different roles. How about using a recruiter will cost you money? This was something that I, I'd always hear from people like, hey, don't use a recruiter because it's going to be taken out of your salary. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. I mean, I get, I get big picture what you're thinking that sometimes people feel if you're using a recruiter, the company is paying a fee to the recruiter and they're paying a fee. Well, somehow it got to come from somewhere. It must be coming from, you know, the person who's going to be hired and they're going to take it out of their salary. It doesn't work that way. Usually what happens is this. Companies what usually you know, they have big teams, talent acquisition teams, and they will go out and try to find people for the open job recs. There are uh, times where certain roles are very specialized and people work in very specific niches and hard as, and as good as some of the talent acquisition people are and the internal recruiters are, they just can't find the right people because they don't have the right contacts. And it makes sense because how can you know every single sector that's out there and every single job that's out there? With recruiters, in my opinion, some of the better ones are hyper-focused, maybe on one, two, three, four sectors maybe. And those sectors are probably interconnected somehow. So they're really experts at what they do. They, 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 they know their niche. They know their sector. They most likely placed a lot of people in these companies within this area. They, they, they over doing this for years, they know the managers, they know the HR people, they know the corporate culture, they get the vibe, they know what's happening. They have a feeling for what kind of people they like and what kind of people they don't like. So they'll go out to recruiters and say, hey, Jack, Christine, could you help us with this particular search? We're having a hard time finding it. And they'll happily pay a fee because they know it's super hard to find this person. And they understand it's a cost of doing business. And they're, they're going to pay 
a placement fee to the recruiter and the and the recruiter's agency because they feel, hey, we tried on our own. It's, it's very hard to find it. We need the extra help. And it's no different than a company has an accountant. You're not saying, hey, the accountant's coming out of my you know, pay, or you have a software designer, a software engineer. It's not coming out of their apartment. I mean, you have people who you have to pay to do things and get, get the right results. So it's not really coming out of your salary. It's just a, another expense, just like you would pay for you know, a computers and laptops and your desks and your chairs and everything. It's just, it's just one of the costs of business. And in fact, I would argue by using a recruiter, it shows that there is, they were not able to find it and it's really tough to find this person. So once they find it, they're going to value that candidate much better because they realize how darn hard it was to find this person. So they're going to not only be happy to hire him, that they're going to feel like, wow, I can't believe we did this. We got this person so hard and this is great. Does that make sense, Chris? Perfect sense. How about this next one? Fight for everything when negotiating and leave nothing on the table. So it, uh, this is such an interesting one because everybody who is on the outskirts of, of this, you know, they're not evolved. They have no skin in the game. They're always, yeah, you know, oh, they're only going to offer you, you know, a hundred thousand. No, you deserve three hundred thousand dollars. If you don't take three hundred thousand, you're crazy. What's wrong with you? My buddy was over at that company, and he's making five hundred thousand dollars. And you got to, you got no, you're getting ripped off. And what I find out, and you, you guys probably see this in your, in your own lives and with your own friends and family and what have you, is like when it's not your life. It's very easy for them to say like really aggressive things. I would do this. You should, you know, you got, you should do this. Don't let them get away with it because it's not your life. So it's easy for them to say it. And they feel cool saying it. They feel like you're badass and like, oh, look how great. Yeah, I, this is what I would do. But what happens is this. With negotiations, and, and I can tell you from literally, I think it's now about 26 years of dealing, of, of, of recruiting negotiating salaries and all that stuff. It's not what you think. Most people I feel who don't engage in negotiations. And in this instance, it's negotiating salaries for a candidate starting a job. Most people, that's not what they do for a living. So they don't really know what it is. So they think in terms of movies, TV shows, where, you know, Jerry Maguire, show me the money, show me the money, where it's, you got to win it all. You got to take it all. You got to get that top dollar and then some, and if not, you're a loser. What I find or found out through years of, of doing this, and this is going to blow your, you ready? This is going to blow your mind. What a successful negotiation usually means both parties walk away a little disappointed. You don't get 100% of what you want. You usually you get maybe 70, 80% of what you want, perhaps, if you're lucky. And that's how it usually goes. Oftentimes, and a lot of people disagree with me on this, but I can just tell you from my own personal experiences. So I, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say this is for everything, but in my own specific, you know, Play and I I play I personally place thousands of people senior you know senior level executives on Wall Street and yeah what happens is most people walk away feeling a little bit you know I could have got this but I really I got this I got the other thing because that's negotiations and what happens a mistake a lot of people make is they feel pressure from others to just go for the jugular and get as much as you can. And if not, and if you don't, you're a big loser. But if you come into negotiating and you're just like in their face, 
you know, and, and just, just pushing and pushing and pushing and being aggressive and pushing. There comes a time where it's off-putting, where the people on the other side of the table are going to start thinking, I don't, I, I know this person is really good. I know they're qualified. Great recommendations. But if this is how they're going to operate, and every time there's a thing that happens at the office, they're going to fight tooth and nail and be uber aggressive and in our faces, I, I can't live like that. We constant fighting all the time. So what happens, the person who really just pushes and pushes and pushes and pushes and pushes every detail, every little thing, oftentimes those are the ones that blow up because the people on the other side just can't take it. Not necessarily you can't take the tactics and negotiating, but can't take it when they start visualizing once this person comes in, this is my, what my life is going to be dealing with somebody who's just going to fight every little inch, push all the time. And they don't want that. Why, why do you, you know, you don't want to be arguing with someone day in and day out, day in and day out. You want someone who you could kind of go back and forth, agree, disagree, and have calm conversation, come to mutually understanding and make each person feel somewhat comfortable. You might not get everything you're getting, but you get most of what you're getting. And as a corollary, I would put this too. You want to, when you're in negotiations, you, you want to know beforehand what's important to you because everyone is different. You know, Christine, you mentioned before about meaning and purpose. So you might sacrifice a little, a little bit of salary working for a, a company that you're going to have some meaning and purpose and accept that because like, you know what? I know I can get money elsewhere, but I don't think I would have ha the fulfillment I would by working at this company. So I get that I'm going to get a little less, but it's going to make me happier. So you, when you go in an interview or you're negotiating salary, rather, you want to kind of have to write, maybe even write it down. You want to keep focus on what's important to you. So if meaning and fulfillment trumps the comp, okay. So you want to make sure you can get the most meaning and purpose. If it's just money, okay then that's fine. Then you know, here's what I want. You know, here's the X amount that you want in terms of base, bonus, profit sharing. And then you want to negotiate that and try to get as much as you can without just pissing them off and driving everyone crazy. It has to be subtle. You know, you, you, know, you could go after that, but you have to do it in a subtle way without losing your emotion. And speaking about losing emotion, what happens, I notice with salary negotiations, is that people take it personally. You, you know, the thing is like, you know, you see in all these movies, hey, it's business, it's not personal. <laughs> it's just, hey, sorry, it's just business, not personal. People take it personally. Let's say the salary bands, and we all know now these salary bands are silly because they'll go from like $50,000 to $500,000. And Clearly what happens, most people feel, oh, I'm wonderful. So I should get on the 500,000 side. And then maybe they'll get an offer for 400,000, which is a lot of money, but they'll still be ticked off because they wanted that 500,000. What happens is that you have to kind of somewhere along the line, figure out what is it the 500 that's important or am I letting it get to my ego? because I'm not getting that amount. And now I'm taking it personally. Why am I not getting that 500 and only 400? Where in reality, in back of your mind, it's like, I never even thought I could get 400. I was only making 250 my last job. Like, what's wrong with me? I, I should just shut up and say, thank you. Get that fat salary and I'm good. So when you have your emotions take over, and you take it personally, you're not thinking straight. So let's say in that example, that person get maybe 400, but they blow it because 
emotionally like I should have got that five and now nothing. Like, okay, Jack, thank you for interviewing. We're meeting other people, so forth. Be careful of letting your emotions take over. Know what you want to do when you when, as you're negotiating. What are your goals? What do you want to achieve? And you just just understand. It's not like the movies and TV where you get everything you want. It's a give and take and give and take and give and take. So both parties are are somewhat are, you know relatively happy, but not ecstatic. Because if one party is ecstatic, that means the other party got cheated. So both a little bit walk away. I could have got better. But that's okay, because that's how it usually works out. This next one kind of piggybacks off of what you just okay. said. Don't ever go down in title or compensation. You know, I've seen this a lot because what I found out over the years is that, and it's, and it's weird, in certain sectors, you could have, let's say Wall Street, right? You could have one bank, like, you know, Bank ABC, Investment Bank ABC, and everybody there is like a VP. So a VP, it's like giving out candy. Everybody has a VP on, on their cards. Investment banking, number two company, to be a VP, you have to be a superstar and they don't give out the title like candy. It's really a high level. And that becomes confusing for people because like, hey, what do I do? You know, I don't want to go down in title because then people are going to look at me and go, hey, Jack, why did you, you went from a VP to AVP, you went from a director or, or, you know, director to whatever is below us, to associate director. Um, did you do something wrong? Um, and then you're afraid to take a lower title because then you feel when you look again, people can say, hey, wait, you were a director, then an assistant director? What happened? What did you do wrong? Who'd you tick off? <laughs> Why'd you screw up? Is that why you're looking? Because they demoted you? It's weird. So it's the titles for a lot of companies, not all, not all at all, but for some, are all, they're not equating. So you need to take a step back. And when you're interviewing, really get a sense of what are the titles? Usually it could be like no title, you know, it could be associate, analyst, you know, AVP, VP, director, managing director, super managing director. You want to know going in, if you could find out through HR or other people, what, what are those titles? And then along with the titles for large corporations, usually they have a compensation range that's baked into it. So if you're a, you know, your VP, I'll make up numbers, is 150 to 250. If you're a managing director, it's you know, 250 to 500,000. This way you want to get a sense of what it's like. So you then can compare apples and apples and oranges to oranges. So if on one side, let's say the title is lower, but you're getting the money you want, well, that's good. A lot of people just get caught up. It's a status thing. They get caught up with, I need to have this title because they want to brag to their family and friends and everybody, look at this title I have. I'm so important. And I get that. And I get that because some that's important to some people. But going in the same way I was talking about how with the salaries, you want that with your titles too. You want to get a sense of where do I fit? What's my base? What kind of bonus potential can I get? What kind of stock options or grants can I get? What is the path forward to go to the next level? How am I viewed within the organization? Because that's important too. Sometimes if you don't have a certain title, you're treated like garbage. You know, so let's say you're just, you're you're a you know an associate or 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 an analyst or a senior analyst, but you still make a lot of money doing well. You might be looked down upon because oh you're just a senior analyst. That's really nothing. These are these are things you have to come to terms with and see what's important. If you really like the job and the company and the title is a little less, but the money is there and the money is important to you, okay, then maybe you want to go and say, hey, suck it up. Don't have, you know, your title might be lower, but you're making more money and that's what pays the bills. 
your title isn't going to pay your mortgage. Your title isn't going to pay you know, your kid's tuition. So if the money is a priority, then heck with the title. Who cares? Pay me. <laughs> Just pay me. And that's what's important. So, so you have to really do your due diligence to see what it is, what it entails. And then also get the vibe check the zeitgeist of the firm. If you're just going to be treated like dirt because you don't have it, then you might say, even though you're paying me, you know what? I'll keep interviewing elsewhere. Also, also, when you make a career pivot, you might have to start at the bottom. So you might have to let go of your ego and accept that you'll have to start from scratch or start from the beginning. A hundred percent. Because there are times where, you know, especially in tough markets, where maybe you uh, think think in terms of the aftermath of the financial crisis, the dot com boom and bust, you know, beginning of the pandemic, um, and you know you're displaced. So sometimes, yeah, you gotta you gotta suck it up and say, yeah, these are the only jobs that are open. I've uh, either I'm sitting on the sidelines, or I, you know, put my ego aside and just just get back in. And then once I'm back in, I can kind of boot my bootstrap myself up again. So that that's that's something to to take a look at too. Um, it's easy again from the outside to say, no, you should just wait till you can get that title you deserve. But you don't know how long that wait could be. You know, the financial crisis took a whole heck of a long. It took years to get better. Pandemic, a year or two, and then it turned around. But that's a long time. So you got to judge and figure out, hey, what's right for you? Um, if maybe you have FU money and you could wait out till you get that exact job and say, you know what, I can stand to wait a month, two months, three months, six months and get back in and do, you know, I have enough money in the bank and I'll do my own thing till then. Or money is tight. You're like, you know what, I got to put, I got to put everything aside. Just, just take what I can get and just reinvent myself and start all over again. What about with people who say don't accept the first offer? It's such a weird thing. I can't tell you how many people I, I've spoken with when they get an offer and like, well, I really don't want to take the first offer. Like, it, if, you, if you really think it makes no sense because that first offer could be the best offer ever and you're just going to dismiss it because it was first. I, it's, I don't know where that came from or why people do that. Maybe it's from baseball where sometimes they'll say, don't swing at the first pitch because you want to get a better sense of the pitcher and they might have a better pitch coming. I'm not sure if that's where it came from, but it is a thing where people will be like, hey, don't take the first offer. I get what they mean. Once again, we're talking about well-meaning advice, but not the best. They're probably figuring, hey, you got this job, you got this offer, that's great. And they're paying you a hundred thousand. That's wonderful. But you know what? You could probably get 150. So why are you going to settle for that hundred? Maybe just take a pass on it and you're really good. And you'll get that 150 or 175 if you just wait. And then you're like, oh, that's good advice. I'm going to do it. And then time goes on and on and on. And the only offers you're getting are 80 and 90. And you're like, oh my gosh. Oh no. Or no offer at all. Or no offer at all. It's it, it's almost like, have you ever seen, do you, do you I don't know, Chris, because I'm a little older than you, but when it was a snow day or you're sick and you're home and you're eating, you know, you're having your toast and tea and and whatever else you have when you're, well when you're a little kid. And then you put on the prices, right? Yes. <laughs> and and those, I, I think it's the prices, right? Right, where you get, or no, wait, it's let's make a deal, right? I think that's one of the ones there too. Let's make a deal so that what ends up happening, I, I can't remember how the game plays, but it's, I think the guy's name was Monty Hall, who's host, right? Make, let's make a deal. And when you do whatever, and then you're like, behind curtain number one, you can get this brand new car, yay. And then, and then something happened and you go, all right, you could switch curtain number one for what's behind curtain number two, but we don't know what's behind curtain number two. And then you're thinking, oh, maybe the curtain number two is even better. It's like, hmm, I'm going to wait and take, see what happens. 
And then you go for curtain number two or curtain number three. And then it's like a can of beads. And you're like, oh, <laughs> I could have got a car. Yeah, it's got a kind of can of beads. Now, this is a memory from a little kid. So I, I think that's kind of how it worked. And yeah, it's like, it doesn't mean that by like not taking the first offer, that means you're going to get better. It could be. And this is, it's hard to predict because you don't know. It's hard to predict. It could be that first offer is the best offer. It could be that if you just waited, you could get a better offer. And I would suggest you have to figure in the time period that you're in. If it's a really tough market, it's very hard finding a job. You hear from all your peers that work within the same line of work that you're doing. And everyone is saying the same thing. Can't find a new job, really hard. Can't find a new job. Then if you get the first offer, you're probably better off to say, you know what? Let me just lock it in. Now, if it's a super hot market, well, you know what? Then maybe, maybe you said like, hey, thank you for this offer. And here's what you could actually say. I really appreciate the offer. You know, fantastic. I love the company. I love, I love the job. I loved all the people I spoke with. However, we both know right now it's a hot market. There are lots of jobs, lots of opening. I feel like I'm doing myself a disservice if I just take that first offer. Can you please keep me considered? I have a few other interviews lined up. Please don't give the job away. Let me attend those other interviews. And then we could reconvene. And I would understand if you're close to somebody and you're ready to make someone else an offer, please tell me first. So then maybe I could realign. So you could try to salvage it and save it. So a lot will depend on the particular market you're in and to decide if, if it's a kind of tight market, you want to just take it, pocket it, say, I got the job. <sighs> or... You could do what I said, try a little negotiating so you're still in the game and you have a chance to perhaps get a couple other, you know, at bats and try to get another hit and not just swing at the first pitch. Could that turn off a hiring manager? They might think, oh, so you don't want to work here. You just want like the highest offer. You know, it's a good question. It, it depends on the market. So if it's, let's say, a, a hot market where when we were coming out of the pandemic and all of a sudden all these companies have to rehire all the people they laid off. The hiring managers get the fact that, okay, now Jack, Christine, John, Jay, Joe, whoever, Paul, they now have choices and they have opportunities. So the hiring managers, the HR, they kind of get their opportunities there. If it's not a hot market, they might be like, what's wrong with you? Are you too dumb to know it's like there's not a lot of opportunities and you're passing this up? What the heck? I don't even know if I want you now because you're kind of a knucklehead. Um, so you got to judge where you are in that particular climate and what's happening at that particular time to see you know how much to push it or not push it. And can you use one offer to counter offer and maybe get more money from the first one? Yeah, usually what happens is, and again, this would be when it's usually a good market where it's a hot market and people may have two or three offers. And it's funny. Sometimes people go, oh, I have an offer. It's not really an offer. An offer is when they say, hey, here's, here's the offer letter. We're paying you this and is in writing and you have it. A lot of times it's just talk. But I would say that you could jump in a hot market. Companies get that they're going to be multiple offers. And that's part of just, just part of the way way of life just just like we talked about before about a recruiter and they like hey you know this is going to be a problem no you sometimes you have to pay up to get the person you want so the companies get like all right it's a frothy market there's a you know there's not a lot of people out there uh and 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 you know this you know hey we got to do you know you got to do what you have to do what about people who say don't leave a safe, well-paying job. Like, why would you switch jobs? Just stay. You know, because this, this is this goes back a little bit maybe towards passion and meaning and fulfillment is that, you know, you'll say to family, friends, others, 
you know, hey, I want to leave. I'm not really happy. I'm not really, you know, like I'm not, I'm not super jazzed. Maybe I'll leave. Um, and and once again, it's it's easy for somebody else to say, you know, hey, you're not happy. Just go. You know, just leave. But that's what what ends up happening because they'll say, oh yeah, if you're not really happy, you're not really loving it, yeah, just switch jobs. It's easier said than done because switching jobs is like, it's a real emotional roller coaster. It's nerve wracking, it's scary. Even if you have that job offer in hand, you know, you're not really sure, even though you met these people, how they're gonna be, uh, are you gonna integrate well? Are you gonna have a path to success? So you got to, yeah, be careful. So even if you're like a little unhappy, a little, eh, not loving it, but someone is kind of egging you on, eh, if you're not happy, just go, switch, switch. You want to be really careful and thoughtful before you make that leap. What if you're unhappy, but then someone tells you not to switch because your job is safe? You know, that's a good question. Because being unhappy in a job sucks because you're, you're stuck there, especially let's say you're in the office nine, nine to five plus um, and you just feel trapped and you don't know what to do. So the question is again, what, like, like what's, what do you do when you're feeling unhappy? Yeah. If you're not happy, um, like, you know how your parents will tell you, like, why would you leave that job? You have good benefits or, or you get paid a lot of money. It, that does, yeah, it happens. And it's like, and the parents would say that, like, hey, just stay. Why are you going to leave? Uh, let me give you an example. So I was, um, I was at a search firm and became a partner. And the senior partner was just, just made my life miserable. Not just my life. He's just, just a, di a difficult person to deal with. Back then you didn't call it like toxicity or micromanager. You didn't have, we don't really talk in those terms. You know, just there was, uh, let, let's say in the nineties, it was a little different. You call them and I, I don't, you know, kind of words that you wouldn't say <laughs> here. Cause I'll probably get censored, but so what ends up happening. So, so, you're in this spot, you're doing well. And so I, I was a part, you know, kind of partner there. And I remember speaking to, to my dad and saying, Hey, you know, I'm thinking of just starting my own business because I, I just, just I just don't feel comfortable with this person. You know, don't, don't, don't trust that person too much. Um, a little concerned about ethics and he's like, no, nah, you're, you, I don't know. And my dad's saying, hey, no, you're doing so well. You're making so much money. Like, why, why jeopardize it? And it, it, in a way he was right because I, you know, I was making a nice living, doing really well, being very successful. But then I was like, you know, I, I can't wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and feel proud about myself knowing that I just, I, I just, I, I don't feel comfortable. I don't think this is the right thing. I don't have that trust factor built in. And ultimately I decided, hey, I'm going to do my own thing. Start, you know, start my own business. And that was a tough, you know, tough decision to make because you're giving up what you know and you and, and you reasonably knew, hey, I'm I would be on this path and still be able to make money and do well. And to start something up, I have to put in money and build it and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But to me at that particular time, and this is weird because I have two young kids, two very young kids at the time. So I was just like, hey, I gotta, I gotta do what I feel is the right thing to do. And even it's gonna kind of cost me, I, I gotta, I gotta take that chance. And, uh, and, and so I moved on and it was actually in hindsight, it was like the best move I ever made. Um, so it's not easy to navigate these these things, um, and and then there are trade offs. You know, trade off could have been I moved, and it didn't work out, and I was like, oh, what a dumb thing I did. 
I just should have sucked it up, listened to my parents, you know, just played the game and did it. Uh, could have been played out that way. Sometimes, and I think, I don't know, I know we wrote an article about this, but I don't know if we talked about this on, on, on one of the LinkedIn lives, but sometimes a lot of luck falls into it. You know, and the luck was that my niche was on, just went on fire. So the timing was perfect because it was such a hot area. It could have been that it wasn't. So sometimes you just a little luck is on your side, makes all the difference in the world. I love that. Sometimes you have to take a calculated risk. Yeah. I know you've interviewed people who have literally put like their houses like as like a liability for like starting a big company and stuff. And they made it out the other side, so it was worth yeah. it. So this would be our our last one. Okay. During the interview process, play hard to get so as to not look desperate. <laughs> this, all right, this is a lighter one to talk about. Yeah. It's this, I, I don't I don't know why this happens, but you could have somebody who you know, because as a recruit, right? I know this person wants a job and they're excited about the job. And then they interview and I'll get feedback and they'll say, eh, Christine really wasn't interested. I'm like, what do you mean? She wants the job so much. I don't know. She didn't come across that way, but like she really wants it. And then they're thinking, oh, Jack's just a recruiter. He's being pushy. No, she really wants it. I don't get it. And there's a thing sometimes where people feel in, in the job search and in the offering stage and all that, that they'll play hard to get feeling. If I'm playing hard to get, they're going to work harder to get me. Uh, that's it's, it's it's kind of like the story I just said before. It's it's very awkward because I find it better, in my opinion, not to play any games. That if you're really interested and you really want the job, don't mess around. Let's say Christine, you're the, you're you're the hire manager, the boss. I would say, hey Christine, I want to let you know, I really like the company. I I like the firm. I like you. Uh, I'm very interested and. If you're inclined to provide an offer, I would be inclined to move forward. I find that works better than playing hard to get. And here's why. In the instances which I'm speaking to Christine and saying, hey, you know, I like you, I like the company, I'm interested. What happens behind the scenes is that the HR person, talent acquisition person, hiring manager, they they risk their capital. Their capital meaning how people view them. So if let's say I'm playing hard to get and I make they make me an offer and you go through the process and making an offer and going through the process takes a long time. You got to get approvals, sign-offs, whole bunch of stuff. It takes a long time. And then if you go through this whole period of time and it doesn't work, then the person who is marshalling the whole thing is going to look like a, like a jerk. Like Jack, you, you, you're navigating the search for six months and now it just blew up. What the heck? Now on the other side of the equation it's saying, Hey, I'm interested. I want to do it. That person knows they could go to their bosses, their senior executives, everybody who has to sign off and feeling confident that the candidate is going to take the job because they said, hey, if you offer it, I'm going to take it. Now, is it happening 100% of the time? No, but it happens like 80, 90% of the time. That person has more confidence to go to all the bosses and say, hey, let's choose that candidate because I, I'm almost 100% certain if, they, if we give the right offer that we were talking about and the numbers we were speaking about, they're going to accept it. And they would rather go with that person than the hard to get unknown that they're going to be tracking that person down and not only tracking this person down, then what we talk about with salary negotiations, that everything's going to be a battle. Everything's going to be, you know, just a pain in the butt to do. And do we really want to go there or not? I'd rather take the easy pass, path knowing that this person will take the job, accept the job and boom, 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 everything is okay. And everybody's happy. We did have one audience question from, Dave Rowe, he said, would love to hear your view on applying for jobs, i.e. LinkedIn versus networking for jobs. You know, I would, you know, I would definitely send um, your resume to LinkedIn. Um, 
don't get scared by the numbers there because I'm I'm very questionable about when you see 500, 1,000 apply. Number one, a lot of people just shooting their shot and they have no skills for it. A lot of people spraying and praying, sending it over. Um, I even wonder too, do they count an actual resume that goes in there or just anybody who's clicking on it or being there? Send the resume. But I would advise networking. I don't want you like, and networking always has this connotation of ick. So like you just hear networking, and you're like, eh, I don't want to do networking. You know, I would say this, if possible, one of the best ways to get to cut in front of the line is to find out who you know who works at the company, who you know who works at the company, who's in a position that they can get your resume in front of the right person. You want to find somebody who could give a glowing endorsement, a great recommendation, and get, get that in front of the hiring manager, the HR person. And this is hard. But then even if you can get another person to, to, to really tout you and sing your virtues, that carries a lot of weight because they're going to think, wow, two, like I'm getting two people telling what a wonderful person your Jack is. And we have a thousand resumes to look through. Let's at least bring Jack in first. So you cut right in line. Well, he has a good recommendation, and I know the person who recommended and so forth. So I would say, yes, yeah, send the resume because you can't eh, send the resume. You know, it's not going to take that much time, hopefully. So I know sometimes it takes forever with these applications. But if, if you could find that right person, and I would say, starting now, try to cultivate, find the companies that you really want to work for. And once you find those companies you want to work for, dig in to see who do I know at those companies? whether it's a college alumni, maybe someone you live in your neighborhood, someone you know from you know, sporting events, whatever the case may be, because then that person could be championing your cause, putting in a good word. And then when the people are hiring me, trust me, when you're looking at stacks of resumes and there's a person who comes in highly recommended by different sources, their life is much easier. Let me just go with that person first and see what happens. So try your best to find a way to get to kind of decision makers, people who are hiring managers, people who have some authority, people who 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 are actually involved with the specific hiring process and get in their ear, have people say really good things about you. And that helps out a lot. So I would definitely focus, I would put a big premium on, on, on spending time to find the companies you want, narrow it down to a group of companies you're really interested in, the kind of jobs you are, and then trying to find the right people who could who could open up the doors for you. And that can make all the difference. I love that. And then not to mention, sometimes networking leads to positions in the hidden job market. So it might even be a job that's not even advertised. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great point. Because right, they could say, hey, you know what? I'm glad, you know, you, you know, Christine shared your re Jack's resume, like may not be for the job he applied to, but we have something else that he'd be really good. We have this recruiting role that's open and sounds like he would be really good for that. Let's, let's bring him in. So, yeah. So you have that serendipitous thing where it opens up another door. You're absolutely right. All right. I think we talked. Whew, how was that? That was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. Yeah. What do you think? That was good. We cover a lot. We covered a lot of ground. I think people will walk away with some great advice that they should take. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. This is good. Right. This is hopefully good proven track record advice. Yeah. Colleen, I think it was Colleen Paulson that said it best, where it was like, consider the source. You know, someone who has been with their company for 25 years isn't going to know what interviewing in today's economy right. and job market feels like. And then also, you don't want to burden yourself with getting too much input so that it like leaves you with like analysis paralysis. It's <laughs> so true. That's yeah. so true. You know, you're debating, do I take it? Do I not take this off? What do I do? What do I do? And then you find out, oh, sorry, we went with someone else. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever like seek advice from people and you like instantly regret it? 
<laughs> you're like so annoyed at yourself you're like why did I even tell them what I was thinking yes like, all the time of course yeah <laughs> of course I think we all fall for that as much yep. as we try uh so hey thank you Christine thank you everybody for watching I hope this was informative and helpful and uh give you and I hope you enjoy like the insights of this is what goes on behind the scenes yeah, so when you're interviewing, you're like, what the heck is going on here? I don't get it. So uh, I'm trying to open up the curtains. So you're like, oh, I get it. This is what's happening. And that that hopefully makes you also feel better. It's like, hey, it's just not me going through it. This is this is the deal. This is what's happening. And this way you're going to be more positioned to succeed and do well in what you're trying to achieve. So uh, thank you, everybody, for watching. See you guys tomorrow. Thank you, Christine. See you later. Have thank a good you. day, everyone. Bye-bye.